Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. This episode of Nighttime contains discussion of rape, child pornography, bullying, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. Let me warn you up front. This one is going to be a bit tough, but equally so, it's important. We're going to be joined by someone whose personal tragedy has ultimately positioned them to become an internationally known activist and advocate against sexualized violence and cyberbullying. Her name is Leah Parsons, and what she and her family have been through over the last seven years? Simply put, it's horrific. The story starts with a group of young men raping Leah's then 15-year-old daughter, and continues through a 17-month quest for justice and odyssey to stop photos of the assault from circulating around her daughter Retea's school. Obviously, what we will be discussing isn't for the faint of heart, but as horrible as it is, you will hear some positives. The crimes against Leah's daughter highlighted significant problems with many of the institutions parents rely on to keep their children safe, and eventually, this story would serve as the catalyst for change. To prevent something like this from happening again, new cyberbullying laws were introduced and sweeping changes were implemented in schools, police departments, and within our mental health services. It's just a shame that Leah's daughter, Ritea, had to pay for those changes with her life. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, we'll be joined by Leah Parsons, and our topic is the life, the death, and the legacy of her daughter, Retea Parsons. All right, Leah, so just to start, if you could just introduce yourself in a few words. Uh, my name's Leah Parsons. I live in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. I'm the mother of three girls and also the mother of Retea Parsons, who died by suicide in April 2013. 
And that's uh, that's why we're here today is is to talk about Ratea's life and everything that led up to her death and everything that happened after. So we'll start basically by going back in time now, I guess a little over 25 years. Uh, could, can you tell me about your life and what what was what was happening in your life when when Ratea joined you? Um, well, when Ratea joined me, um, I had a kind of turbulent uh, youth. Uh, I myself was, um, I don't want to say victim. I survived uh, child molestation. I was raped at the age of 14. I went down a really uh, dark pathway of spiral and self-hate, like starting at 14. Like it really impacted me. So I had found um, from the ages of my 20s, finding my way like that I did have resilience, that there was strength within me. So little by little, I was gaining some self-confidence. And just before Retea arrived, I I had like a mindset shift probably around the age of 27 that I finally felt like my life was going in the right direction and that things are just going to work out for me. So I had that kind of shift in my mindset. And then when Retea, when I found out I was pregnant with Retea, uh, Glenn and I, her dad, we had only been dating for about nine months and we stopped seeing each other and decided to just remain friends. And then two weeks later, I found out I was pregnant (laughs) and I was like, oh my gosh. But it was the weirdest thing because I was so excited and I felt like, Oh, I should be like fearful or scared. And oh my goodness, I'm alone. I'm single, (laughs) going to be a single mom. And for some reason, I was really excited. So uh, I told him and, and, you know, we decided we'd parent together um, and work it, you know, work it out the best way we could. So when Matei was born, I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, like I finally have something other than myself to focus on and care for but it also at the same time in those first few weeks it was terrifying because I realized that I was going to be responsible for her well-being so yeah in those early weeks I made a promise to her that and I still have it in one of my journals that I was going to be the best mom I could be and at that time I had still been a high school dropout so I only had my grade nine education and so I promised that I, I, to her that I would get an education. And that terrified me. But I did it. I wrote my high school equivalency exams. I, when she was nine months old, I enrolled in the Mount. And I ended up doing an undergrad degree in psychology. And then I went on to do a master's degree in counseling. Wow. By the time she was seven. All while raising a kid. <laughs> yeah, by myself. Um and Glenn did visit, have visitation and stuff, but it was it was me and Retea, and she was my driving force. Like she gave me the the focus, the determine. I'd never been so focused in my life at that that I was at that time. That's great. Now, one thing I have to ask about is her name. Like the name Retea is so unique. I don't know if there's well, maybe there is now, but yeah. when she was born, I don't know if there's anyone else in the world named Retea. Where, where did you get that name? You're so right because. Um, there are a few retails now. Um, wow. Yeah. So that's a great question because when I was about 14 years old, so I'm the youngest of seven children. Uh, mm-hmm. So my older siblings had been married and had children when I was like 10. 
because because there's a big age gap between the oldest ones and me. And so I was playing around with names one day when I was about 14. And one of my niece's names was Heather. So I had spelled Heather backwards. And I said, oh, that spells Retea. If I ever have a little girl, I'm going to name her Retea. And I knew that she'd be called Ray as a nickname. And I was like, she'll be my ray of light. And so I had this whole like fantasy about the name Retea. And ironically, I, of course, I forgot all about that and just went on with my uh, (laughs) self-destructive years. And then when I got pregnant, as soon as I got pregnant, I remembered that name again. And I'm like, oh, if she's a girl, I'm going to name her Retea. And I asked that is amazing. Glenn if he liked the name, and he's like, "I do like that name." That's, a, that's an amazing story. Yeah, it's that you often hear most people uh, just buy one of those books where you're flipping through. Yeah, you had it uh, implanted in you as a young child. That's that's really uh, that's amazing. Yeah, and the name it's um, having you know shortening it to Ray is cool, but just it's if you make up a name, it's, it's like it's kind of hard to make up a name from scratch, but it just it worked in this case. It did. And yeah, and looking back, ironically, like her name is so unique. And now you're right. Like if you said Retea, a lot of people just you just have to say the first name and people know it. So it is kind of like one of those things where you look back in life and you just like it just like, yeah, it's just one of those things Mm -hmm. when you reflect on it's like and it was just uh, it just happened like that. Now let me ask you, like raising Retea as an only child or as a um, a single parent, and going back to school, like she would have grown up seeing you, you know, bettering yourself and doing all these things. Do, do you think that helped shape, you know, who she was as a child and who she she grew to be? I never really thought of that, but I'm sure it shaped her. Mm-hmm. When she was born, she came out like. A- very uh, determined and, and a fighter and very determined, like, like she was just what's next? What more can I learn? And yeah. maybe her seeing me study, she was, uh, her passion was learning and she mm-hmm. couldn't read enough. She couldn't absorb enough. She was, and for her in school, she didn't want her friends to know how smart she was. Like she didn't want to show them her report card. Um, <laughs> Because it came really easy for her school. Growing up, like what was what was she into besides reading? What kind? Of, how did she pass her time? She had a lot of little friends in the community in our street that she played with. But it was interesting because anytime we would go to a playground or anything like that, she would actually sit beside me and watch everything. Like she wasn't one of those ch- children that just jumped in and you know started exploring. She watched all the people and the equipment. And then she actually decided what she was going to do and who she was going to approach. You could see her little mind working at a very, very young age. So she was um, very observant, but but cautious. And she also had a really, really huge heart. Like she really felt deeply about anyone. Like she saw a homeless man in the dumpster one day and she just beside herself crying because she didn't feel that was and she's maybe five she felt that that wasn't fair and so she had a real propensity i guess towards the anything that was any the disenfranchised like the uh, dogs animals people Uh, she really had a big heart around that Mm -hmm. 
And what about as she as she grew into say into becoming a teenager? I, I from what I see in photos and whatnot, it looks like she had a, a budding social life. Like as she entered, let's say junior high, was that a bit? Did that become a big part of her life? She always had more so than my other two girls. She always had a, a circle of friends with her. So um, she, yeah, she always had a, a group of people with her. So I know for in junior high, um, yeah, she always wanted to hang out with her friends. She wanted them to come over. She wanted to have, um, you know, sleepovers. And I remember I did a presentation at the community college a couple of years ago. And a young girl came up to me afterwards. It was for the the nursing students. And she said, like, I just wanted to let you know that I met Retea in when I was in grade seven. I had to go to the new school. And Retea was in grade eight. And she said, I was so scared to go to the new school in junior high. I didn't know anybody. And she said, Retea saw that in me that first day. And she went, came over to me and said, hi, my name's Retea. Come with me. You can eat lunch with us. And so she, again, she was really tuned into, oh, that person looks out of place or they're not comfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm inviting them in. Oh, that's amazing. That's something with my kids. I'm always trying to, my, my kids are really comfortable in their own skin is the way I put it. But I'm always trying to, I'm always encouraging them to look after people who maybe, who maybe aren't, but yeah. to do that with on her own initiative says a lot about the type of person that, that she was at that point. Yeah. Um, you, you had mentioned at that point in your life when you were, you know, a, a teenager, you were, had the, the wild side. Did you see much of that in Ritea? No, actually, um, I didn't. Uh, and I was really oh. relieved because I was terrified. That's a relief. Yeah. <laughs> I was terrified of that going into, you know, junior high. But the other thing I promised her when she was just a baby was that I was going to have all the conversations with her that nobody had with me. And so that meant I was going to be open conversations about what it meant to be a female, what it means to be desired and, you know, not to focus on what you look like and, you know, not that you should dress a certain way or not dress a certain way, but just to know that if you're going to dress a certain way, you're going to get certain attention and it's not for the reasons that you want. And so I had all these open conversations with her about uh, right from the little girl when she could understand um, about boundaries, about, uh, you know, being able to speak your feelings. And she was really good at communicating her feelings. So going into junior high, I think it was grade eight and that she came home and she told me that there was a boy in her class that liked her. Um, So she was very open about those things. And I said, Oh, well, what do you think about that? And she said, well, I don't know. I'm going to watch him for a couple of weeks and see. And see that just brought me right back to the playground. And I was like, Oh, Oh, she's going to watch and see that. Oh, this is, this is such a relief that that part of her is still there from a little girl to junior high and that she's going to kind of have that cautiousness about her. And then two weeks went by and I asked her like, what did you think? Or she goes, yeah, I I watched him and he's way too immature for me. (laughs) And so I actually, um, I felt safe, right? I felt safe that she had her head on straight and that of course she's a, a teenager who will make mistakes, but that, I just, that gave me some sort of 
the false sense of security that she's going to be okay. And, um, and that, of course, wasn't the case. Yeah. Maybe we'll just jump right into it. If, if you can kind of t- tell me about what led up to what happened that night in, in November of 2011. I understand it was she was to be staying at a friend's house. So maybe if you could just set up what you knew about what she was up to going into that night. Yeah, sure. So going into that night, of course, by that time, so Ortea's like left grade nine and she... Um, you know, when I say she was cautious and stuff, it wasn't that she didn't try to push boundaries with me and didn't give me, you know, attitude and um, typical teenage stuff because she was a very stubborn, like, I want to do it my way. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, so she did have that kind of way about her. So she did, you know, her and I did have some struggles just with, you know, boundaries and making sure you get in on time and those kinds of things. Um, but when she left... Um, junior high to go into high school so she was 15 at the time and she was meeting new people at the high school of course because her other feeder schools but she still had her she had her main group but of course in junior high you're going to be meeting new people too and i call that you know the bricks and mortar you're going to decide who you're going to be right like Mm -hmm. as you kind of try on new experiences the bricks and mortar of who you want to be and so she did meet a friend and she had been hanging out with um, a new friend for a couple months. And I'd met, you know, she'd come over to here and I'd met her. And this happened in a community just outside of our community. And she mostly, her life just kind of up until that point stayed in this community. Um, so she had asked to sleep over and I talked to the mom and and everything was fine, everything was okay for the sleepover that was going to happen. So her and this new friend went um, that Saturday afternoon, went to a home where two brothers lived, and they were hanging out there, and somebody introduced vodka. I don't know who or how that all played out, but there was alcohol there. And so there was two brothers and her and her friend, and then two other males at some point, came in later so now we have four males two females and Ritea was drinking vodka straight um and then she got really intoxicated the girl that was with her left and so there was Ritea with four males and she was raped by those four males that night and you didn't, when this happened that night, you didn't know there was trouble. Like it, when you're at home, you think Ritea is just st- spending the night at a friend's house. Is, is, am, am I following that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I thought she was at her friend's house um, and that she was, you know, she was there and sleeping over. I had no idea that they went to somebody's house. I think it started like the afternoon, that Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that they went over to that house and that, you know, that alcohol started and that, yeah. So then there was four males and two females. A lot of people say, Oh, it was a party. And this got out of hand. That wasn't, it's not, wasn't a party. Um, Mm. I don't call that a party four males and two females, but, um, Mm. yeah, it was, she was left behind. 
-hmm. and the details and around that are were are kind of unclear of how she kind of got left behind but she remembered hitting her head on the window pane um because she was throwing up out a window and she heard there's there pieces of that night that she remembered because she hit her head kind of came around and as that was happening she was she was being raped by one of the guys and they took a picture of that that was the image they took a picture of and, and that image started getting shared the net let's say the next day so that this all happened that saturday night it, how did like she did she just come home the next day and yeah and you had you had no idea that anything had happened she had been drinking or whatnot no idea did you like did you have any sense that something was going on with her or notice anything different or was she keeping just what had happened bottled up she was pretty much keeping what happened bottled up um she wasn't herself like looking back she mm -hmm. was kind of sullen and moody mm -hmm. um but not really talkative like i didn't so i didn't really know i of course i would have no idea what had happened what what was going on mm -hmm. but i mean she's also 15 so that kind of <laughs> comes with the territory sullen and cranky <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah how did she confide in you what had happened like how did that how did that happen so what happened was um i was working at i was working that night on a Friday night. I was working. I got a call out, so I had to leave. My sister was here. She came over, and I had to go on an after-hours call. Um, and when I was gone, my sister called me and said, you have to come home right away. And I said, why? And she said, Retea needs you. Like, she's not hurt, but you have to get here. So when I came home, my sister was here, and I had come in, and there was Retea in a fetal position on my kitchen floor, sobbing and crying and pieces of what happened that night and the photos, she started kind of sharing all that. And I, I literally had to hold the door frame because my knees started buckling and I just couldn't yeah. believe what I was hearing. And I just never saw her like that. And she was actually saying, my life is over. They're not going to leave me alone. Wow, because by the time she confided in you what happened, she had been facing more than just the sexual assault because you you had already mentioned the picture. So maybe if 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 you can tell me what she can, how she described it to you, or what you got from the story when she first told it to you that Friday night, like what what did you understand had happened and was happening to her? So she kept talking about a photo that they're sharing a photo of me, and everybody's calling me a slut. And I can't go back to that school and I can't show my face. And then she started saying what happened to her that night that, the, you know, they were drinking and she was spurting out like just bits and pieces of it. And, mm -hmm. and I remember, I remember saying to her, you were raped. <laughs> I said that. And we had to call in um, the mobile crisis team because um she was just uncontrollably sobbing and she was she just kept saying they're not going to let me they're not going to leave me alone mm -hmm. so she had been starting to get harassed at her school because she 
she knew a lot of people in this community and she, you know, never had problems. She loved this community actually. And everywhere she went, she knew people. And then suddenly she walked into her school and she was no longer Retea because the four males or whatever, however many of them, um, went and told the story of their version of what happened. And then nobody questioned that. So they just, Retea was now suddenly the slut. Mm -hmm. In the photo, the way I understand it is it was being passed around like uh, people texting it to each other and such. So by the time she went to you, this was already out of control at her school. And it just seems like either no one knew or nobody did anything up until her breaking down. Is that right? Yeah, nobody did anything. No, nobody. They just kind of turned on her. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's what happened. The photo, you're right, was started getting shared around. People were texting it to each other. And um, so I just know the next day, um, I went. we went to the police station and gave her her statement, the first statement. And that's when everything, everything started going wrong way from there. Getting the police involved, for anyone who knows your story or Retea's story, that's a, a story all in itself as far as how, how this was handled by HRP and everyone else involved. But why don't you tell me about when you go to the police, how that what had happened initially and what their reaction was, if any. So what, what's it like to bring your daughter to the, the police station with this kind of story? Oh, it was, it was horrific because then I was just really struggling with... Um, the whole kind of not really ha being able to wrap my head around the fact that my child was raped. Um, yeah, that was a really <laughs> difficult, but then, you know, you go into this kind of survivor mode and I've been in survivor mode enough times in my life that it just automatically happened. Um, that I just stepped into kind of, we got to get this, we got to get this done. We got to get this figured out. Um, but yeah, going into the police station, I will say that that first person, even though it was handled all wrong and the whole interview was handled wrong, I guess. Um, like I wasn't supposed to be in the room when it was, when it was, the interview was happening and it was supposed to be recorded and it wasn't even supposed to be taken by that person, by, by, uh, the integrative crime unit. Um, so we went in there and the, the lady that we met with, the constable we met with, was an RCMP officer and she was very, you know, very nice and took all the information. We were there for an hour and a half at least. I know. Yeah. Cause I was, I was on a lunch break actually. Yeah. We were there for an hour and a half and the constable, I know Retea got up and stormed out at one point. She was so agitated because it was, you know, bringing this stuff up, talking about it, asking questions. She, it was just a bit too much for her. Uh, so it was, it was really hard, but we thought that something would get moving with the school and with the, you know, the photo and we thought things would start kind of moving and getting something resolved. One of the things that you did to help protect Retea and separate her from the bullying and what's been going on is 
you supported her in changing schools several times, I believe. Can you can you talk about what what led to that and what effect that had on her and this situation? So we changed schools immediately because she didn't want to go back there. Um, I don't blame her. So yeah. she had to go actually stay with my sister, which is just not far from me, so that she could go to Dartmouth High School. And it was really hard for her because she, you know, she's lived in this one community her whole life. And now she has to walk into a new school where she doesn't know people. And she lasted maybe three weeks, maybe two weeks because the photo showed up and then she was having panic attacks and she didn't even know what a panic attack was. Um, she just started having panic attacks like within days of after her breakdown, her body went into total like trauma. And so she would go from anger to sadness, to yelling, depression, crying all within an hour to hyperventilating. She can't breathe. Um, this was just like spiraling and I would have to go, I picked her up from the high school and she was in the bathroom and she's like, you know, I can't, I can't stay here. So we had to get her out of there and then we had a, but she wanted to, like, she wanted to just regain her footing and start again. She wanted to go back to school and go back to learning and life and she just couldn't get her footing under her because of all of this mm -hmm. and dartmouth is not a, a big city so changing schools it's not like she's starting a new life in this you know like as if she was moving to a whole different country or something mm -hmm. like that so do, do you does she or do you know how the photo made its way to her new school i'm thinking there would have been enough kids connected that Oh, she got a message from the, the girl that she was with that night that actually told her when she went to that school that doesn't matter where she goes because everybody's going to know she's a slut. Oh. Yeah. So that, so I guess that makes it pretty clear that Ritea and the the other young woman she was with that night didn't remain friends after this had happened? No. No. No, she actually shared the photo more than anybody else. Really? Um, yeah. Other other than yourself, were there close friends that Ritea had that were supporting her during this? No, no. And and uh, she, I she was crying one night and saying, "Where are my friends? I know that you love me, my dad loves me, but where are my friends?" So that's awful. I think in, in you know in hindsight, looking back. Not only was she starting a new high school and new new experiences and kind of, you know, climatizing herself to the high school years, the friends that she grew up with were also. So some of them who I don't think even though they knew the photo was being shared, I don't think they really realized the impact that was having on her, her or they were so involved in what trying to figure out, you know, their, what their life is about, that they didn't really see this as what it was doing to Retea. Now I will say there was also supposedly, you know, friends that turned against her because that's what I would call the, you know, I, 
there's a toxic male culture out there, but there's definitely obviously a toxic female culture out there too. And I feel like Rattea had a lot of things going for her and they were, there were people just waiting for her to fall so that they could socially, what I call socially annihilate her, kind of take her out of the, you know, the equation socially. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what girls do that don't like who they are. And that kind of have this kind of way of kind of attacking other females to try to build themselves up. And it's really, it's really toxic. And I think that that played into it. At this point, you have gone to the police. She gave her statement. She's been changing schools. What was the, the, did you expect something to change with the police like as that kind of investigation or whatever you want to call it dragged on like how how were you as Rutea's mom and how was she as the victim of this crime dealing with how long it was taking for any sign of justice so initially when we went to the first rcmp officer and then a few days later we got a we got a call that said oh we have to meet with the integrative crime unit we we gave our our statement to the wrong person um not not you know, that we were supposed to be kind of trans transferred over. Um, so the, the, the HRP investigator, she seemed really hopeful in the beginning. She, she was really positive and she even told us that, yep, yep, this is, this is going forward. We're going, I'm going to go into this, go into the schools and do a presentation about uh, photo sharing. We're going to get that photo taken down. We're going to lay charges. So this was all before Christmas break and this, um, so this happened in November 12th. So mm -hmm. going forward, everything seemed like it was going in the right way until, and then she, the officer went on Christmas break when she came back. It was a completely different story. It was a completely different attitude. Uh, it was like, what? I didn't, we, we, we were shaking our head after that. We actually thought that something was going to happen there and then it mm -hmm. just shifted. And obviously that had a, a big effect on Retea because I understand in March of 2012, so about three or four months after the sexual assault, or, or any downward spiral she was on seemed to really become, um, really seemed to start hitting the bottom, right? I understand she was put into the IWK uh, for a period of time in March. Can you talk about what led to that and how she responded to seemingly hitting rock bottom at that point? Yeah, so she, yeah, she was definitely, by that time, so, okay, so that time she was spiraling. She had started drinking. She was doing drugs, um, trying to cope the best she could, numb out. Uh, I couldn't work anymore because my whole focus was trying to get her help, trying to keep her safe. So I was on uh, leave from my, my job um, and she wanted to be put in the hospital and her dad took her over and put her in. And she was, I think it was like five weeks she was in. She got was in that hospital. I couldn't, didn't even recognize like her, the anger. Um, she was in with uh, the mental health. It was called For South at the time they changed it for youth struggling with mental health issues. So she got in with, I think they all kind of fed off each other, uh, like the other youth. And 
one time she she said something about she was going to hang herself with her underwear or something to one of the nurses. So they called in a security guard. A male security guard came in, stripped Rutea naked. They put her in a time away room for a 24-hour period where she wasn't allowed to make a phone call to us. Nobody went in to talk to her. She was left in that room and she was screaming at the time. It's even, it was in her file, her hospital file, even. What is that? Why is this? Why is he, why is he doing this? Doesn't he know I was raped? Don't you know I was raped? And she was heard yelling that um, when he was stripping her down of her clothes. Uh, So that place that she was supposed to get help created way more trauma for her. Mm -hmm. And after her five weeks in there, when she came out, was did you see any improvement or did she come out just still you know at the bottom of where she ended up basically oh she came out more broken yeah way way more broken um the only good things i think that happened to her in there she met a few friends um she also talked about they took her to hang out with horses um part of the program and Rateo just really loved horses and animals. But other than that, she was traumatized. She was, I mean, she was stripped naked. Um, she's a, (laughs) she's suffering trauma from rape and a male guard comes in and strips her of her clothing. Just unimaginable. And nobody sits with her and talks with her. No counselor goes in to, you know, talk her down or tell, you know, anything. It's just like militant kind of, behavior that you would not imagine like when she told me that i found it hard to believe (laughs) yeah uh she she was released shortly after that but even going in like day two we met with the psychiatrist and he wanted to talk about the discharge plan Hmm. and i'm like well well date where she just got here i'd rather talk about a wellness plan (laughs) of what's going to happen while she's here and what can we you know what? What's going to support her when she leaves here? But it was it was really uh, it was really shocking. When you hear of someone looking for you know mental health treatment or getting a crisis, you hear the kind of the concept or the phrase like someone fell through the cracks. But when you hear Ritea's story, it's not that she fell through the cracks. It just seems as though there was nothing for her to even stand on. Where her time at the IWK was awful. The police seemed to be doing very little the schools didn't seem to be helping and it seemed and her friends kind of backed away as as you describe it the schools just kind of backed away yeah and yeah and i can i can't imagine how helpless she must have felt and, and how helpless you must have felt as her mother trying to protect her and one part of this whole thing that to me just comes across as a real slap in the face is about six or seven months after this happened no, more like 10 months after this happened, September of 2012, I believe, is when the police finally did something to the people in the photo, the the young men in the photo. And what they did, it just seems like they were caught throwing snowballs at cars or something. Can you can you talk about what the the initial police response with these people and their parents was? So when they finally did decide at like, you know, month 10 or whatever to interview them or attempt to interview them? Is that mm-hmm. and talk yeah. to the base? Yes, yeah, so that's right. And I understand they had, 
I don't know how stern, but it seemed like they had a little talk with their parents is about as far as it went. Yeah, the parents said that they, they would not allow their sons to be interviewed. And that was the end of that. Nothing was done. Um, actually, in the beginning, I when when the police officer told me that she was going to be talking to, you know, Retea's friends that had the photo and things like that, um, I said, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't really understand why you wouldn't, the first thing you wouldn't do is to go talk to the males involved before they get together, get their story straightened out and know that the police are involved. So I don't know why you wouldn't just go right away and speak to the males and get their statement first. And then she didn't like that. And she said, this isn't CSI Leah. It doesn't work that way. And when, when they finally do make it to the young men in the photo and involved that night, like you said, the the parents refuse to allow mm-hmm. interviews, and and it seems like for the most part, it was at that point the police basically just put the brakes on everything. Was there? Did you expect anything more to happen? Or at this point, you know, September, like a, almost a year later, were you pretty much given up on the any possibility of the police doing anything about this? I hadn't given up. Um, I think it was in the summer that Retea actually called for a meeting. We met with the police and the victim services and the investigator and different. um, She called a meeting. She wanted to know what was going on with her case. So we did meet and uh, we wanted answers. And it didn't seem too hopeful at that point. But I Mm -hmm. still thought, okay, they still have to do something about the photo. Like, okay, they're, they're, they're kind of not taking the rape serious, but they have to take the, they have to take the photo serious. Like that can't just continue to be circulated. Mm-hmm. And the, the right laws were in place so that that photo would qualify as like child pornography or something. You would think that that alone would have kind of the teeth to put a stop to it you know, legally with criminal charges for anyone in possession or sharing that photo is kind of, when, when I hear the story, it just seems like that should have been the angle that was taken at least immediately to get the photo to stop circulating. Yeah. And that, and, and that didn't happen ever. It never happened. Mm-hmm. So when they closed the case and I asked, I asked the, at that point I was talking to the, to the investigator, the head of the unit, so the integrative crime unit, um, the head of that unit, because I was always trying to go above to the next person to see, uh, to get answers, because um, mm-hmm. I didn't want to just deal with the one investigator anymore because we weren't getting along. So I would go mm-hmm. to other people, and I, the person at the head of the unit, who in November, like almost a full year later, said that the case was being closed, there would be no charges, and I said, well, what about the uh, the photo? That is child pornography. And he said, we're not, no, we're not, we're not um, filing any charges because it, that's a community issue, Leah, not a police issue. Like, we can't see your face in the photo. And really, like, I know that she's underage, but because, like, she doesn't really look like she's underage in the photo, so we're not going to 
make any charges there either. That's just shocking to to hear that. And then, oh, it was so shocking. And then he said about the sexual assault, he said, like, in those beginning few weeks, Leah, uh, one of the males had messaged Retea and asked her if she was okay. There's a text message we have. And it says, asked her if, if, if she, are you, are you cool with everything, um, that happened? Are you, I heard you went to the police. Is everything okay for you or something like to that effect? And she said, it's cool, LOL. And he said that, you know, she did say it was cool, um, that it's okay. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what would you expect her to say when her rapist contacts her? Don't you know she's saying, go away, leave me alone? Like, hmm. you, this is um, not evidence of after the fact consent, if that's what you're trying to say. Like, hmm. uh, so his reasons were just, again, I left me shaking my head, like, is this really happening? And actually, Retea wanted to go on uh, 95.7 Talk Radio we, uh, uh, before her case was closed. She actually wanted she, to talk. And we thought that it would be best not to until, you know, we didn't want to harm the, the investigation. Mm -hmm. So we thought it would be best to kind of wait. Wow. Yeah. With the police closing the case and basically her just being hung out to dry. Do, do you think that that had, was that one of the factors you think that led to what eventually would happen with Retea in April? Like, did, like when the case was, or the investigation was closed and there was not going to be justice. So, yeah. So, do, yeah. So it, of course it did. Um, Cause yeah. every time she would try to get back up. So four schools, four transfers, uh, Citadel was the third one. Yeah, she went to PA twice, uh, Prince Andrew. And like she would get a little bit of momentum under her. And then she's like, yeah, I, I'm starting to feel a little better, Mom. And But then like the photo would show up again or somebody would say something to her. She just didn't have enough time to kind of keep working towards getting better without something kind of coming at her. And so when that case was closed... She was so angry, like all the anger and rage just came right back to the surface. And she was like, they won. Everyone thinks I'm the liar and that they're, they're telling the truth. And that's not what happened. And so again, you know, so much uh, shame and like, she's just trying to get back up on her feet and they, no one would allow her to do that. She did cultivate, you know, friends come back in. She made new friends at every school she went to, um, but she got harassed at every school she went to, too. And she had old friends that kind of came back into her life that she was, you know, hanging out with again. So there were some, like, a few, there would always be, like, a few steps and then crumble. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a 
happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, I'm going to ask you about something difficult, and I don't know how comfortable you are talking about this, but with what happened on April 5th, can you, can you tell me about how Ratea's life ended and how you found out that this this had happened? I was home when this happened. Uh, so what happened is when you are struggling and you're in trauma and things are going well for you, any little thing can kind of trigger the underlying trauma right to the surface. And that's what happened that day. So that day, um, she was in a really good mood that day. She went out, her friend was staying here with us at that point, which I was really grateful for because she had like comfort and they seemed to really, you know, laugh a lot. And so her friend was staying here with us. So that night I text her from the grocery store because they went out after the resumes. They, a bunch, a few of them went out and she had to be home at 1030. I text her at the grocery store, asked her what her and her friend wanted. She sent me back some things she wanted me to pick up. So later I went to bed early. I don't usually go to bed early. I went to bed early. Uh, text her, said like, where are you? Are you coming home? This is like 1020. She had 10 minutes to get home. She said, yep, she's on the street. She's walking down the street. And I heard the door open. I was downstairs. So her and her friend came in. So I knew that she was safe because every night I would worry uh, till she got in the house. <laughs> and then I heard her, she had raising her voice and being really loud. But I knew she wasn't arguing with her friend because there was no, I could only hear Ritea's voice. But that wasn't really an uncommon thing because Ritea was cycling through a lot of emotions. She was now a troubled teen, so it wasn't a big thing to hear her raise her voice. And so I don't know how much time went by. The voice, she stopped being loud, and it calmed down. It got quiet. And I was just about to fall asleep. I was still awake at that point. And her friend came down and said, Leah, you have to come upstairs. Uh, Retea locked herself in the bathroom, and she said she's going to kill herself. And I said, oh, okay, I'll be right there. Like, don't worry about it. There's nothing in the bathroom she could hurt herself on. Um, she's upset. I'll be, I'll be up. I'm coming up. So when I came upstairs, um, I immediately grabbed something out of the uh, drawer on the way to the bathroom to unlock the door. And so I could, yeah, I just started kind of knocking at first and trying to get in. And I, you know, I unlocked the, the door and 
I thought she was sitting up against the door. She wasn't letting me in, but she wasn't saying anything either. And I was just like, Ratea, come on, let me in. And I could feel the weight of her on the back of the door. And then when I finally did get in, it wasn't a, it wasn't a pretty sight. And then that was when I told Jenna to call 911, get me a scissors. And then I had to cut Ratea down and kind of lay her down until the, the ambulance got there. I'm sorry to ask you about to recount that, but it, it, after that happened in, in, in the house, in the bathroom, there was a period of time where she was taken to hospital. Was it looking like she was going to pull through or from the very beginning was this looking like it was going to end up with bad news? Well, my, my boyfriend, um, Jason, he did the CPR on her while we waited for the ambulance. And he got color back into her for a moment. And we thought it was going to be okay. And then the color started draining from her pretty quick. And then the ambulance came and then they took her in the hallway. And they must have worked on her for half an hour um, to try to get a pulse strong enough to take her to the hospital. So I knew, like everyone around me was saying other things. I knew right then she was gone. And not long long after she was, it was announced that she she had passed in the hospital. I think it was like two or three days later, if I I have the timeline right. Very quickly, you began to to speak out about what had happened to Ratea. I believe you, that was when you first published your your blog. Is is that right? Yeah, I, I posted something on Facebook, like probably when she was still in the, uh, Probably, like, I don't even remember. I think she was still in the hospital because there was three days we had to wait to Mm -hmm. see whether she was going to, her brain was going to come around, if she was going to make it. So there was three days there of waiting. I think it might have been in there somewhere. And then at some point the doctor said she's not going to make it. It, when you made this post on, on, I think it was on Facebook. Now that you say it, that reminds me. It, that was the first. Was that the first time, really, that you went public with how you were feeling as the parent? No, no, no. I did before. Um, six months in, I think, to the investigation, I put it all out there: what happened to her, what the police are doing, what they're not doing. Um, like, yeah, I put that on Facebook when about six months into the investigation. Mm-hmm. But now, with what had happened with Ratea and in her death, plus you you going public like this, it seemed to me as as someone who like I, I was living in Halifax at the time, it just seemed like it went from like I don't know the local news would have would have talked about it, and then it seemed like ten minutes later it was an international story. That's right. Yeah. How did it feel for you going through the trauma of what had happened to your daughter, what she'd been living with, now your daughter passing away under such horrific circumstances, to all of a sudden you're now on basically the world stage as an advocate for sexual assault against youth, child porn, cyberbullying, all these things that just seemed like in the middle of this horrific situation, you 
you were just kind of put on stage. How, how did you respond to that? Or how did you deal with that? It was kind of like an outer body experience. Um, mm -hmm. It was really bizarre. It was, but I felt really strongly that wasn't about me anymore so I stepped up right like the fear of public speaking the fear of being I guess it would have been judged or like none of that even was there anymore it just left mm -hmm. like all of a sudden it was just like this it wasn't even a thought it was just I'm speaking for my child now I'm her voice she mm -hmm. never wanted to be silenced she didn't want it to end this way she definitely didn't want to die and now I'm her voice, so I have to I have to be the one speaking for her. So it was it was just that immediate shift, like that, just like that. Wow! And it was as far as the the attention that Ratea's story was receiving. Like, am I fair to say that you would have just been hounded by calls and emails, basically from all over the world for interviews and such? Like, it seemed like that was after this had happened in Halifax, but on, again, you were on Dr. Phil, like it was, it was just everywhere. What what was it like to, it almost would have been like your career to be an advocate for Retea after this happened. How, how did you manage your time and just manage the requests you've been getting? So again, my boyfriend, Jason did all that. Uh, so he would kind of uh, bring things to my attention. I couldn't, to this day, my phone is on silent. Mm -hmm. My phone ringing is a trigger for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. My phone has to be on silent. I can't. I can't um, really deal with the dinging and the beeps and the so. And especially certain ringtones. If I hear somebody else's ringtone that had the same one I did, it's um, because it was so overwhelming. Like People Magazine were at Ratea's funeral. Uh, oh. Like film crew showed up from Japan. It was just like, what is, I, it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely um, somebody else, like Jason had to query all the, bring things to me. Do you want to do this? Like, oh, so, oh, the prime minister wants to meet with you. So we're going to fly up and meet the prime minister. So it was just kind of like picking and choosing. And of course, in the beginning, and make you make mistakes because I know nothing about the media. And, you know, some, some, you learn who you can trust in the media and you learn who is going to take your words and twist them. So I, I learned a lot and uh, yeah, I was kind of on anger. I tell everybody this anger has, a, has a purpose. Anger fuels you and moves you to action. So anger is a really good emotion. It's a lot better than depression and sadness because it actually gets you moving. But then after a while, you can't, you can't sustain anger. When was it that you realized that the police and the RCMP were going to be kind of put in a corner and would have to address this in some way. Was there any point that this was all building up that you, you started to think like they're going to have to do something? No, no. Um, I, I wasn't thinking like that at all. I was just in the moments, like it was just like a momentum, but I didn't know where it was going to go or, or what was going to happen. Um, I do know that when I, after she died and I got a message from one of the males, uh, an inbox in my Facebook, 
explaining he wanted to meet with me and he was explaining how he didn't he didn't rape Ritea that night. And in his explanation and in the chatting, you could clearly see that he had no idea what consent was. Or he was like just completely he filled in the blanks that she couldn't remember and it was like there it is right there so i printed that off and took it to the rcmp hoping that they now now here's some evidence he's telling you he's the one in the picture it's right here so even with that they're like oh we got to prove that it came from his account and there was a whole like um thing around that too but that was the evidence they took to reopen the case. But, of course, with that was a whole lot of pressure hmm. from people around the world. And there was a there was a spotlight shining in Nova Scotia. And people were watching. Absolutely. So there's a lot of uh, public pressure there. Yeah, and that's a story all in its own. The, the amount of attention and pressure and all the things that were happening on the Internet, both good and bad mm -hmm. regarding... You know, people trying to get justice for Retea and then people seeming to just be kind of kicking the the pot and causing trouble. So you you almost like in the aftermath of this, I'm sure you've seen the best and worst of people through the time immediately after when the spotlight was on Halifax and on you and on Retea's story. Absolutely. I, I just I find that in life, of course, there's always those opposites. So if you're going to be out there speaking, you're my, I was getting a lot of support and a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of support from people around the world, but I was also getting a lot of hate, a lot of blame, a lot of, uh, it was horrific things being said to me and about me and about Glenn. And yeah, you, you, you kind of see that, how can somebody or people be so cruel to somebody in their darkest moments? And on the flip side of that, like the gifts that were pouring in, like in my mail and things that I was receiving every day and messages of support of people around the world who don't even know us. I felt like I was being supported. Mm -hmm. For sure. And you now you, you had already talked about um, getting that message and bringing that to the police and then that being the, I guess, motivation or the catalyst for them to reopen the investigation. Can you tell me about this, this second, second try at their investigation? What, what happened and what became of it? Oh my goodness. Um, so the second try, let me think if I can even remember that. Um, Cause they reopened the case, mm -hmm. new investigation uh, somebody anonymous threatened to release the names of the four males involved. And when you say so, anonymous, you mean like the, the web hacker activism group known oops, as anonymous, yeah. which the, them alone get like that fact alone that they got involved at the time they would have been addressing, you know, they were, they were more known then than they are now for, for getting involved in injustice. And yes. they got involved in Retea's case. Oh, yeah, they absolutely did. So they hacked into computers and they got, I guess they got emails from schools uh, into the school systems of uh, administration, what they were saying about the situation. They got into who these four males were and were threatening to the police. If you don't do something, we're going to release these names to the public. So um, 
I spoke out against that and said I didn't want any kind of vigilante justice, uh, that that's not what I was really about. So it was interesting because the police showed up immediately at my door, the investigator of the new, when the case was reopened and said, you know, you can't release these names and you can't do this, you can't do that. And I was, and I was just like, it was just like so bizarre that, you know, you're showing up at my door so quick mm -hmm. to tell me that these names can't be released and has nothing to do with me. But when Retea's picture was out there and her name was released everywhere, nobody was showing up at the mail store saying, you can't do this. Like, it's just, it was so bizarre for me. And so that was uh, trying to think what happened next. So they were, they were interviewed after that. They were charged with, um, making and distributing child pornography mm -hmm. they were not charged charged with sexual assault of course it's not even retail wasn't even here to take the stand but they they were charged and we did have to go to court and i did have to read a victim impact statements so of the four males two of them were charged so instead of going and following the line of you know who else shared this photo they just went to the source like who's in the photo who took the picture and it stopped there. So they charged those two, like they didn't follow the line mm -hmm. of where else that picture went and who else was sharing it multiple times. And mm -hmm. and the do you, I have never been able to find out exactly what the punishment were was for these people, but I understand that it's that it wasn't anything serious. Do you know what eventually came of their sentencing and their charges? So at, when they were charged until their court date, they weren't allowed to use computers. They weren't allowed to send us messages on YouTube or things like that. So they weren't allowed to contact us or say things to us. They, when they went to court, one of them was mandated to send, uh, because he had nothing to say to us. The judge kind of told him that he had to, a year or something to write a letter hmm. to us. Uh, because he had nothing to say in the court. The other one had things to say in the court. So he he wasn't mandated that. Um, the judge spoke to them probably 45 minutes. Of he, So they got conditional probation. And there was a few conditions put on them. But it wasn't anything major. Um, the judge did let them know that their behaviors and their actions was a direct domino effect that led to her death. And their lawyer stood up and kind of was like, you, we're not, you know, they're not charged with murder here. And he's like, no, I, I want them to be very aware that their actions, direct actions led to, you know, what happened next. So he, he did do what he could do within the parameters, but they were underage. There was, you know, they're the, they have the protection of the youth protection uh, laws. So there was not a lot. Mm -hmm. So now after this is all, all said and done with, I guess that's as much justice as the system's going to afford you. From there, you really took on the role of somewhere between advocate and public speaker and it seems now that the the circumstances that allowed this to happen to Retea 
and the circumstances that allowed or that prevented her from getting the help that she should have been able to get afterwards. It seems like that has been a huge motivation for you to share this story. Can can you talk about how you ended up in the role that you are now as, I guess, activist, advocate, public speaker is the way to put it? Yeah, it's kind of evolved and changed over the years, Mm -hmm. for sure. So in the beginning, I definitely an advocate speaking out in schools and conferences at round tables at, at the reviews there was reviews for the the uh, mental health IWK there was a review of the police there was a review of the school um, there was a you know new legislation across Canada so I was kind of in systems at that point a lot of traveling and talking at of what went wrong what needs to be done what needs to change and then that kind of went from that level probably to speaking um at a lot of schools across canada to youth uh to share retea's story and to let them know that this happens to real life people and i had to really kind of go inward and do my own healing and kind of face my 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 own emotions in ways i've never had to do before and then from that place i started kind of getting on a healing path and then spreading messages so then i was all of a sudden invited to go to uh like trauma conferences and speak uh how do we heal trauma what do we do with trauma how do how does it live in our body what can we do to move it and i became a yoga instructor so i really got in tune with what's going on inside of me and so it kind of went from a a systems level to like the school level to communities to individuals to how can I now help people in community levels change their kind of perspective and dialogue of what is rape culture and how is it kind of how does it contribute so if I can change a a young male's attitude towards how he looks at females and how he's been conditioned to kind of see um these situations if i can get him to shift that kind of thinking it's going to change his behavior so i kind of went all the way down to ground level okay i did what i could at the systems level how can i influence and impact people in their day-to-day so that they can bring that to their children and grandchildren and you know so it went from that and then to how can I help other people heal that have already been traumatized? How can how can I help teach them the things, the tools that thankfully was brought to my awareness and I just kind of followed a path of healing and it brought me to to these huge ways that I was able to kind of move mm-hmm. and it, in pain. And it, and it seems as though, like as you even as you describe it there, it was never like a conscious thing. You were just kind of going from one opportunity or one situation to the next and you just ended up so i almost see it as like this tidal wave just took you and now you're yeah. just uh in the in its wake is that the word for when the wave breaks <laughs> you're just getting tossed, yeah, just yeah just tossed yeah. around and now and now here you are now you you mentioned the all the various um reviews and inquiries and, and whatnot that happened in the wake of of Retea's death I don't expect you to summarize all the findings or whatnot, but throughout those, what what would have been some of the 
like the things that you were really happy to see identified as a problem or a contributing factor, like, is there any part of those reviews that you're like, you know, I'm glad that that positive came out of this at least. Absolutely. There's so, there's so many uh, positives that came out of it. And I, and again, I had to follow up with the police review was the biggest kind of revelation and that can be found online. Mm -hmm. The police review, I think had 17 different recommendations that were brought in from someone outside of the province came in to do the review. The things that he found, it took months and months and months. The things that he found were glaring kind of uh, problems was one was there's no trauma informed care. There wasn't, there is now. So at the IWK, they, they didn't even have a trauma-informed approach to helping children that are struggling. So that was huge. That if someone comes in and says that they've been sexually assaulted, the woman that was in charge of Retea's investigation had never had any training in, in sexual assault uh, cases. So... If that's happened now, you have to be assigned to an investigator who has at least taken the training. Mm -hmm. So that was um, that was a that was a big one, and there was so there was seventeen recommendations. I think they took on all of them and agreed to do them. So I had to follow three justice ministers to follow up to see is this in place and you know is this ongoing? Is this still happening? Uh, so I did have to follow up with three different justice ministers. And, of course, the legislation that came up about for Nova Scotia for the cyber scan unit uh, and legislation, it was shut down because it was too broad and then it was reintroduced. So that was another one. And, so people. Yeah, sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you, but that legislation is is new wording in law about how like the, the sort of thing that happened to Retea with digital like sharing digital images and cyberbullying it's i understand that that came from her case the these laws were really motivated by the shortcomings of how the law was able to respond to Retea's stories is that is that right yeah that's true for Nova Scotia and in the criminal code of Canada there's also a law there too mm -hmm. that states now because of what happened to Retea it states that you cannot share an intimate image with someone without their permission, regardless of their age. Mm -hmm. So we already had the child pornography laws in place that would have, they would have been applied to Retea. But then since then, they have this in the Criminal Code of Canada now that you can't share anyone's intimate image without uh, their consent. It's, it's a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. So that came about too. So the biggest thing I think with with all of the changes and kind of after that is if a photo showed up in a school right now today in Nova Scotia, there's absolutely no way that it's going to be shared for 17 months. Mm -hmm. That's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And even though at the time the principal could have and had the right to go in and confiscate those phones for some reason, they were hands off because it became a police investigation, but they were allowed to do that. That was already a policy that was in place. Um, whether they're afraid to take the property of a student's phone or that, you know, because it was a police investigation. Um, today, those phones would be confiscated immediately. Um, one topic I'd like to hear you talk about is 
I, I believe it was during this the second time that the police were responding to the crimes against Ratea is for a period of time people were prohibited from using her name in the press and that was at a point when you were actively raising awareness and you know sharing her story to better the world and that led to um a lot of kind of the the mainstream media almost being handcuffed and telling her story because they weren't able to use her name can, can you just talk a bit about about that and how you dealt with your inability at least for a period of time to publicly say her name so that that actually started an, a momentum all of its own oh, yeah. uh retire persons is her name um because yeah it was really we had to go um we had to go find a way to get that lifted because like all of a sudden her name was out there before she died uh her name was being you know dragged across the mud and she was being tormented. And then afterwards, everybody knew her name. So to suddenly kind of retract that in the media, it felt like just another huge injustice. But I did have, um, it, it didn't go well. It didn't go in the favor of that because it became another uproar. It became another wave of, oh my goodness, this can't happen. Mm -hmm. And the public and i i kind of knew that was going to happen and i just thought oh no no retea's voice is not going to be silenced here again and i and i knew i didn't know how it was going to play out but i trusted that that was just not going to happen mm -hmm. and so the ban was was lifted mm -hmm. and what, what was the reason for the ban is it because she's an underage and was a victim of a crime like why was what was the story with that that's exactly it. The mm. judge said, actually, we can't say her name because she is an underage victim of this crime. But her name had already been out there for almost a year when that happened. Yeah, absolutely. So and it didn't even it didn't make sense. And she's not she wasn't here to. Yeah. So it was it didn't really. But it was apparently that is law. Yeah. It just in this situation, it was like when you think of it, um, Logically, it's like it obviously didn't make sense, but it uh, were, were you not to given permission at one point or told like we will not prosecute you if you use her name before yeah. the ban was lifted? Yes. Was that a yeah. formal thing? Like, did you actually speak with like, I don't know, the justice minister or someone who gave you the OK to use her name publicly? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what happened. Um, I had to think about that for a minute. <laughs> yes. The justice minister did say it would be OK. Uh, told us it was okay to use her name as uh, as long as it was in a positive light. Okay, well that's I yeah. think that's fair. So I think you, for the most part, you've answered this, but this story is obviously horrible to relive it and to tell the story. Why is it so important for you to put yourself to tell the story? Although the you know you're you're dragging yourself back through it every time you do. Like what motivates you to continue to share Ratea's story? Um, I, I don't tell the details of her story a lot these days, actually. I talk more about healing. Mm -hmm. um, but as long as as long as I can speak her name and tell her story, I will. Mm -hmm. Because I'm, I'm her voice now. So to me, it's it's her message coming through my voice. And it's really important because her life uh, means something. And her legacy of what she leaves behind means something. And I if I can impact people to change the way they see these things, then it just gives more, 
uh, more meaning because uh, I forget who says it, but you you know your legacy is every life you touch while you're living, and uh, I feel like Retea's legacy is everything every person she touches from the other side. So I feel like you know there's ripples and it can keep going and keep going. I don't feel driven to continually have to like if I stop saying her name, then that means you know that she doesn't matter anymore. Or I don't I don't feel any of that type of pressure. Uh, I just know that wherever it goes, whatever happens is exactly how it's supposed to kind of unfold with her story. So I let it kind of, I do let, you know, the waves and the kind of tide take me where I need to go. Mm-hmm. You know, for a lot of people listening to this are going to be parents of young children or parents of middle-aged children. What, like, what do you think people, parents should know about your experience that, you know, is there is there any lesson we could learn or anything we should look out for or do that could potentially, you know, help people like Retea and people like you from being put in these situations? Well, I was mistakenly, I, I, like I said earlier, I felt I was safe because I felt I had all the conversations I need to have with her to keep her safe. But Retea was never safe in that situation. Because everything I taught her, first of all, went out the window when she couldn't get up and walk away because she was too intoxicated. And she ended up in a room full of people, males, who weren't taught the same things about consent and what it means to to help someone when they're vulnerable, not take advantage of them, not be a predator that's looking for their, uh, you know, their opportunity to harm somebody. And so the conversations that we're having it's so multi-layered it's so um really important but there's so many layers to what we call rape culture and if we're only having the conversation with females because i think most parents most mothers already know to have these conversations with their females Mm. we just know that so if we know that then why are the parents having the same conversations with males of what it means to be uh, a male and you know how to view women not as objects to be conquered but as human beings but we do have we do have a lot of really fearful people out there that feel threatened mm. when we have certain conversations and and I've been accused of being a man hater if I say anything that's like around rape, like I ha- I'm speaking from a female perspective. Of course, males have been raped. Of course, males suffer in silence and in other ways too. And it's harder for a male to come out and say that they've been sexually abused. I'm not denying any of that, but there's a, there's a, like a, people are really fragile around their ideas and their beliefs. And they're so like, are you saying so? All I have to do is post something on her page to get all of a sudden you'll you'll see what comes out. You'll see, you know, what about females? You think it's okay for females to beat up men? Like I didn't say that. Mm. It's not okay. I, I'm not even saying that. Well, you yeah. just you you see how um how the situation is viewed almost as a minefield and. With with you being as vocal as you are on you know and, and as um as out there as you are you know posting online, 
I'm I'm not surprised that you um, drum up both sides of of the fence or both sides of the yeah. field, so to speak. But it's yeah. like you say, it's, it's just it's so important for people to know this can happen. And you know, there's nothing special about about you or Retea that had brought this to you. It could have been any other any other family. And so I think um, in you sharing your story, and even if you get these, uh, I'll call them morons <laughs> that complain to you on yeah. the internet, it's um, what you're doing is very valuable work. And the perspective you have by go- by living through this is um, you could never teach that to someone and have them you know, do the things that you're doing. So it's a, I thank you for having the courage to face the pain, but also spin it into a positive and do the things that you're doing. Yeah. And thank you because that was exactly was my, my other point I wanted to say was um, people often will say things about a family or about me because it gives them a sense of safety that it won't happen to them. Mm-hmm. Well, that family, she must have been a troubled teen already. She must be, she must have been these things. And it gives them a sense of safety if you can say that that's because that family is. But I think um, when people kind of really listen to this, what happened to Retea, they easily could feel like that could happen. Oh my goodness, that could happen to my child. Mm-hmm. That could happen to anybody's child. Mm-hmm. So really I think it really kind of brings that to the attention that this this these things can happen to anybody. Mm-hmm. Now, as as well as you know Retea, how do you think she would feel about her name and her image and her story being used as this, you know, worldwide as this cautionary tale? Like do you think this would be something that she would be proud to be involved with given the circumstances she was put in? She's very proud to be involved in, in all of this. Um, to me, this is all her doing. <laughs> um, I'm just the one here that's still here, but to me, this is all, all her doing is that she wants to reach people. She wants to help people. And I get messages every day that says, you know, because of Retea's story, I'm going to do this. Or because of Retea's story, I'm going to get the help I need for my own sexual assault. I'm not going to keep this bottled up anymore. I mean, people even come to me and say, Retea came to me in a dream and told me, you know, you know, your life is worth it. Keep going. So I know that she impacts a lot of people and she'd be extremely, well, she is extremely proud to see that. For people listening who want to follow the work you're doing and follow Retea's story, where, where do they find you or, or follow and you know follow your work? They can find me on Facebook, uh, Leah Parsons. They can find me on Facebook under her page, which is Angel Retea Parsons. Um, she has a website, uh, reteaparsons.ca. I have a website, leah-parsons.com, of the work that I do, that I'm doing now. So there's, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find. Before I wrap this up, I want to give a heartfelt thank you to Leah Parsons for sharing Retea's story with us and for being so generous with her time. 
Leah, the work that you, Glenn, and Retea's many supporters are doing has truly made this world a better place and a safer place to raise our children in. As a parent myself, I thank you for that. And with that, I'll begin wrapping up this episode of Nighttime. But first, I have some more thank yous. A huge thanks goes to Fortnite Beats for supplying the musical theme for this episode. I've added links to him in the show notes. Catering for this episode has been provided by Cape Breton Queso. If you like dipping things in warm, creamy cheeses, you need to get some Cape Breton Queso delivered to your doorstep. I've added all the links you'll need to level up your date night in the show notes. And lastly, I want to give a massive thank you to everyone listening to Nighttime. Without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. If you want to help take a bit of the weight off the show's shoulders, please subscribe to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it gives you more of each topic than you'll find here on the free feed, as exclusive content is added to the premium feed weekly. So please consider supporting Nighttime by subscribing to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes on social media and letting your friends know them and letting your friends know about the show. If you have any story ideas or if you want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. You can also find me on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'm live on YouTube every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday night at 9 Eastern Time. And one last thing, if you'd like to provide your thoughts on Retea's story, please contact me or send me a voice memo. I'll answer the questions or discuss your thoughts in the next Nightcap post-show live stream on YouTube. Again, you can contact me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.